interact with people. <laughs> okay. But he who never feels contrition, now we're beginning. He who never feels contrition and in whose mind no thoughts of repentance at all ever enter is called the wicked who suffers. And again, we explained previously that suffers here is the literal meaning in the Gemara for the word raloi, but we're understanding it means that he, the evil is, is within him. He has evil in him as opposed to good in him. For the evil that is in his soul has alone remained in him, having, no, having so prevailed over the good that the latter has already departed from within him. Stand, okay. So this person, the godly soul has departed. Now, in this sense, there is something similar to the tzaddik v'tayvloi, because in the tzaddik v'tayvloi, there's no evil in him. But again, the difference was, if you recall, that in the tzaddik, the tzaddik transforms the animal soul into good. Here, the godly soul is not transformed into evil. Rather, what happens? The godly soul departs. Okay, so I want to first talk about why is that? Why, why is it that the godly soul departs whereas the animal soul is transformed? Does anyone have any ideas of why that might be? The godly soul is real. That's right. Okay, so, so, so that explains only one thing though, why it can't be transformed. It doesn't explain why it doesn't leave. In other words, there's, there's two parts to the question. Why is it that the animal soul could be transformed, the godly soul cannot? Well, because the godly soul is real. It really is godly. So it can't become not godly. Whereas the animal soul, non-godliness, ungodliness, unholiness is not a reality. It's not a truth. Right? At the end of the day, the ultimate truth of everything is that there's nothing other than godliness. So therefore, the ungodly evil aspect, the klipa, the sitra achra of the animal soul is inherently false. There's inherently an untruth to it. Now, I want to be clear about this. There's a difference between false and untruth versus something that is um, an illusion. Just giving you the simple analogy, um, if I lie to you, right? The lie is not an illusion. The lie is real. But, but because the lie has an effect, the lie is, a, the lie is an entity. But, right, you're conflating the lie for the truth. That's illusionary. You know, what, is, what does that mean? That the godly soul is real and the animal soul is not? Well, start with this premise. The only thing that's real is godly. Okay. So anything which is ungodly... Do we mean like not permanent? Or? <sighs> we mean... We, we, so you can mean this on many levels. The, 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 the way to, a, a good way to think about it is think about light and darkness. Light is a substantive thing. Mm-hmm. Dark is not a substantive thing. It's a lack of light. It's a lack of light. And that lack of light has tangible effects. It's a reality of a lack of light. But the lack of light isn't real. It has right. So, for instance, um, if you walk into a room that's dark, right? Like what? Like saying, is, is the jewelry real? But yeah, it's real, but it's not like gold. Right. right. There's, there's, there, there is a reality of darkness, but what is darkness? It's just an absence of light. Okay. Now, the, the, the delusion comes in is that when you start thinking of darkness as a substantive thing, just like light is, that's, that's completely delusional. So I don't want to elaborate too much on this because this is not really the point, but, but the godly soul can't be turned into, I mean, it, it is godly. As was the animal soul, the evil in it is, a, is a, 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 a corruption of the actual truth because the actual truth of everything is that everything is godly. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to put it in a, in a slightly different sense, um, when you eat food, you, you destroy the food on the one hand, but you transform the food on the other hand. It used to be, let's say, a carrot. You've destroyed the carrot. 
But the carrot is just an arrangement of the molecules. And you rearrange the molecules in your body, right? So the molecules weren't destroyed, right? So, so to speak, the, 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 real, the real reality of the carrot, purely, right now, purely speaking on a materialistic way of looking at things, the reality of the carrot from a, from a, from a, from a physical standpoint is the molecules of which it's comprised. Right? To treat the carrot as somehow something in and of itself, I mean, it, it, it makes sense to do that in interaction, but it's not the real reality of it. And so if you strip it, I say, I can eat the carrot and turn it into part of me. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, the godly soul, its godliness is its reality, is its truth. Whereas the animal soul, its truth is the godly purpose for which it exists. And so it could be transformed. It could be elevated. Okay? Now, that, that's a topic that we could go into, the idea of transformation of which we did in chapter 10. I don't want to re- rehash all of that. I just want to point out that that, that, that possibility exists because the, the animal soul as is has something about it which is not substantively real. It's, it's not an illusion, but, it, but it's, something, it's something that has to be taken in a larger context to really know what it truly is. Just like to understand darkness, you understand you're experiencing an absence of light. That's what darkness is. And when you realize that, you relate the darkness differently. Um, the godly soul, though, is the thing, right? So the analogy of jewelry, the, 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 you know, it, the jewelry is real, but it's not real gold. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, this is, an important, this is an important point. Let's talk about sins versus mitzvahs. Over time... Do sins pile up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? Well, what's a sin? Separation. Se- separation, right? A distortion, a distance, right? From Hashem and Hashem is truth. So let's equate for a moment a sin being a lie. If you lie, you tell another lie. Then you tell another lie. You tell another lie. Now, the lies only really are taken seriously when they purport to be the truth, right? If you keep lying, what eventually happens? And so the lies start to expose themselves as. And then once they expose themselves as lies, they lose all of their, their power. So if something is based on a, on, a, on, a, on a concealment of the truth, a distortion of the truth, a denial of what's ultimately real, if you perpetuate that long enough, what will happen? Either someone will reject it or it'll collapse under its own weight. And so there's this idea in Kabbalah and Hasidus that evil does not really accumulate, really. It's a house of cards. It's, 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 it's a web of lies. And so there's a strange kind of way in which evil is self-defeating because as evil becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, it ends up undermining itself. It's like a person who's living a double life. The lies start to become bigger and bigger and more outrageous until it's just not sustainable anymore. Can you repeat that? What do you mean like cards? A house of cards? A house of cards? A house of cards means it's not stable. It'll fall apart. Right, like if you have a house of cards, right? It's standing on, on cards, right? You know that, like you, you know. Okay. So, or like a Ponzi scheme. How does a Ponzi scheme work? A Ponzi scheme work is that you invest money with me, but you're not really investing money with me. You're giving me money, and now I have to give you back returns. 
And the idea is I keep you back returns and I can keep the original investment. But I'm not actually investing the money, I'm just using the money. So then I get you two to invest with me. I use the money that you gave me to make returns to her. But now I'm giving returns to you. So now I need to find some more people. Now this can keep going as long as... There's more people. This is called the pyramid scheme. Multi-level marketing, Ponzi schemes, they're always the same thing. And what make, they're, they're false because there's no money being made. You're not turning the investment into more money. You're not producing anything. And so eventually, you just run out of people who are willing to give you money. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? People start saying, well, I'm not getting my investment, so give me back my original investment because you're always going to pull out of the investment. And then the whole thing goes... Mm-hmm. The success of the Ponzi scheme is its own failure. See how that works? If I have an actual business, what am I doing? You're giving me money, you're investing money with me, and I'm going and turning that, using that money to provide a good or a service, which people then pay me more money because the goods or service are worth the money they're paying me. And then I use some of that money to reinvest and keep the business going, and some of that money I then pay my investors, right? And this, as long as the good or service I'm providing is worth, what, is worth enough that people are providing enough to keep that going, the business will perpetuate forever. I mean, it doesn't because the markets change and things like that, but those are very different things. So there are things where its own success undermines itself. It's built on a lie. Mm -hmm. Klipa, sitra achra, unholiness, evil is inherently like that. So how is evil, how is evil not accumulate? You just described it. Because if it's something, because it eventually destroys itself. Eventually it undermines itself. So if you go for a long enough period of time, you don't end up with a lot of evil. You end up with less evil. But to, to use the Ponzi scheme analogy, like, the whole point is that as time goes on, you owe more and more and more money, so it is accumulating. Yep, yeah, no, but the Ponzi scheme, what ends up happening, the Ponzi scheme, eventually, as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, what ends up happening to it? I mean, you end up owing more and more until it Until it collapses, right? Where if something is just accumulating, like the accumulating means you should, if something is accumulating, you should always have more. What's happening here is a weird kind of thing that on one kind of superficial sense, it's getting bigger and bigger. But in a deeper sense, what's happening, it's being hollowed out from within. And so you kind of have to have, realize that there's two layers to that. That's true of klipa. It's not true of godliness. And so therefore, godliness has this kind of intrinsic reality to it. It can't be turned into something else. And the godly soul, therefore, will never be transformed. The animal soul, its evil, can be removed and be transformed to something holy. Um, by the way, diseases are like this. Like infectious diseases. What do infectious diseases do as they spread? Well, if infectious diseases spread, A, you know, many diseases create immunities and people that survive, Right? I should hope so. <laughs> B, they incentivize people to take behaviors that prevent the spreading of disease and treat the disease, right, or eradicate the disease. And three, they often kill people. And if you let any of these processes go on long enough, you know what happens? The disease doesn't have enough people. Mm-hmm. And diseases, that's how, this, is, this is how waves of disease die down. Interesting. The success of the disease ends up stopping the perpetuation of the disease. Yes. Same thing with animals. The animals are successful in breeding. They eat the food. As they eat the food, there's fewer food. As there's less food, the animals die off. 
There's an interesting thing about how the world like, doesn't have things that can really perpetuate themselves. They can't really just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Mm-hmm. There's something really, as you go deeper into it, otherworldly about the notion that something can just really build on itself forever and ever and ever. Um, and that's a note because that's really something godly. It's not something a created being really can do. Something godly perpetuates itself. Something ungodly ultimately runs itself out. Its success undermines itself in some way. Wow. And you could play this out psychologically, right? If you become a hedonist, you run into a problem, right? The more you pursue pleasure, the harder it is to experience it. So getting back to sins, um, over the grand scope of history, do we have to be worried that God is accumulating the sins of all of us and is going to rain down his wrath upon us? No, because ultimately, on the other hand, our mitzvahs, being that they are godly acts, do they accumulate? And so on the grand scope of history, even before we add the element of tshuva, right, it's not even a balanced scale between the sins and the, and, and, and the mitzvahs. And then you add the element of tshuva that from time to time, what do we do? We erase our averas. And that actually has to do with the excessive error because what drives a person to tshuva? Feeling? So separate. so separate from Hashem. So the sins made you feel separate from Hashem and you felt separate enough that what? You do tshuva. Which, right? So the success of the sin ends up causing its own being undermined. So there's a way in which there's an unreality to... to to sin and to evil and to the Sahara. Not that they're not not that they're illusions. Not that they're, they're not in a way that's just not true of something that's godly. And so, therefore, there's no notion of the godly soul being transformed. Okay. Good. Wait. So then, why? Like, how long does it take for the sins to just undermine themselves? Like, then, why do we even have to do tshuva? Eventually, they'll go away. It's a good question. There are two ways of thinking about it. One way of thinking about it um, is that doing tshuva just expedites the process and makes it less painful. The deeper way of looking at it is that actually that's what tshuva is. is because as the sins keep building up on the lies, right, what happens with the Ponzi scheme? Eventually, as the Ponzi scheme grows, it can't keep providing the returns for people. And what do people do? They pull out their investments and then it all collapses. The sins rely on the fact that we're still willing to sin. But we're still willing to still because we can still believe we're not totally disconnected. But as we become more disconnected, it's harder to believe that. And eventually, the sin actually precipitates and, and is, the, is, the, is the instigator of the tshuva. A person sins one sin too many. They're just a bridge too far in how, in how separate they feel from Hashem. And then they're no longer willing to engage in sin. And then it undermines the, everything that the sin had, so to speak, accomplished for the side of evil. So the deeper idea is that it's not actually two different things. The tshuva is the manifestation of life of a person of the sin undermining itself. Well, this would explain why Eliyahu Novi tells the people, like, either worship God or go worship idols. Just don't hop back and forth. Because if you go all the way into the idol worship, what's going to eventually happen? Right. This is actually something that Chassidah speaks about, is the power of tshuva can come from, from the calling the bluff of the Yitzhara. The Yitzhara is saying, well, you can just engage in a life of sin. He's like, yeah, really? Let's play this out. So I'll sin, and I'll sin, and I'll sin, and then, and then so I'll do this, and then 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 I'll do this. Until I get to the place where there's no way you're going to convince me I'm still connected to God, and I'm living a life worth living. So then the whole thing's a joke. The whole, thing's a, the whole, thing, the whole, thing, the whole thing is is a charade. But there are people who live there. 
Are there? You've gone deep down inside people's lives? Like, from the outside, that's the way it works. That's an important thing to know, from the outside. From the outside, Bernie Madoff appeared to be one of the world's best investors. Uh-huh. From the outside. You have to know what's going on on the inside. So if their actions just look completely opposite of Sarah? You don't know what's going on. They seem to just their whole life? You know what's going on inside. Do you have an example of that? Like, I'm trying to think. Like, like, like any random secular Jew who just lives his whole life. Give me an example of a random secular Jew who just lives his whole life. Like yes. Like yes. Give me names. Okay. Have you ever like sat down and have a conversation with your next door no. neighbor? No. So <laughs> you see very quickly, like you know, the, the people are much more. There's so much more going on in a person. Yeah. Okay, what does she conceive of as perfecting herself and achieving success? A. B. How old is she? And C. What is her background? Because saying that she's not religious doesn't tell me anything. So three questions. First, what does she conceive of success and perfection of self as? What? Okay, so I'm going to make a guess that she's under 45 then. Okay, well, there you go. Nobody over 45, for the most part, actually thinks like that. There's few outliers. So, get back to me when she's 70. I mean, that that you don't even have to go all the way to Yiddishkeit. That you can just go to, like, basic human psychology. You can ask any person who who deals in positive psychology, which is the study of of, of psychological well-being rather than psychological... Is that person, people, people who, whose aim in life are for extrinsic goods, like career success, accumulation of wealth, and things like that... um, it starts to eat away at the quality of life and a sense of well-being, and, and, and they end up having to engage in things to compensate that, such as distraction um, or developing some sort of neurosis or all sorts of things like that. Like, it, there's a whole literature on this that you know, people need. People, like, success needs, needs to be framed in terms of intrinsic things, like development of character or purpose or communal belonging and things like that. Um, the acquisition of knowledge as kind of an intrinsic good for certain people. Things like that. Um, usually it's very hard for people to like, you know, I have a career and I'm making my money and I have like, it just, it doesn't, it leaves people starting to feel very empty as they start actually attaining that and, and, and having that. It doesn't really... It's, again, it's a classic example of something that appeals from the outside. So again, I want to be clear, clear. What I'm saying is not like, this is how you can make everybody religious. This is just like the nature. And this is the problem is that if you go deep enough into many things, you start running to this problem. As you go deep enough, you can start saying, well, like, well I really care about like, the perpetuation of my community. And you're like, well, okay, but like, like, 
really deep down is that just a way of just like making you have a, a, a buzz and feel good or is there something deeper there and anyway, but the, the 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 ability as human beings have a, have a limited ability to live life in such a way that what they're doing really is self-perpetuating and as Jews it becomes even more constrained because we have a godly soul now how that plays out is very different it does not mean I want to be very sweet, it does not mean that by definition a person who is strictly orthodox is necessarily going to be living a life that in terms of the internal experience is self-perpetuate the person who is not strictly orthodox is not because you have to go into the totality of the person and like, can I just give you an example? There, there are people who are not strictly orthodox, but they, they're putting on tefillin is something every day, or they're lighting Shabbos candles every week, whatever it is, um, is something that is in, has, they, they have a sense of its intrinsic value. They have a sense of its infinite worth. They may even use words associated with religion, such as connecting them to God or not, but they, 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 they have that, and that anchors them through things, and that's, something that has a sacred quality in the fact that it's not reduced to kind of utilitarian thing. And you have plenty of Orthodox Jews who just like do the missus and move on. So while there's the holiness of the act, the holiness is not necessarily and the, the reality that is not penetrating the person. So it becomes much more involved. Okay? Um, so it's not that you can you, but, but, but if a person leans into a life um, where, there, where, where there's devoid of, of anything godly, then, then no, it's, they're going to a tremendous amount of emptiness. Okay, human beings are very good at managing emptiness. We have whole industries that are meant for managing emptiness. Right? So. Um, my question, sorry, Yes. Okay. I finished. I finished my rant. Okay. No, it's on that topic, but I'm just like wondering because I'm thinking about how um, we were talking about how if someone doesn't know that this or that is positive or negative mitzvah, they're not held responsible for their lack of knowledge. Right. So let's say that this person is non-religious and they are living their life the best way they know how and da 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 And like maybe their like total lack of sneas or they're like in various elements of their life but they've got like amazing like like they never say they're always assuming the best of other people. They're very like various elements. Like they could technically be much higher. Is, is that a way to like look it at is, it? It is, although I, 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 I would I, I would just ar- yes, other than argue, I would just one detail and would argue it is that sneas goes in the category of things that you don't need to be. I'm not talking about the specific details of sneas, but there are certain. The, the, in Torah, we differentiate between things that you really need to be educated for and things that are part of, of the human condition. Okay. So modesty, honesty, um, uh, respect for others. Um, Things like that, and, and therefore any of the mitzvahs that come along with those things, mm. compassion. These are things that are, do not depend. These are things that people have an innate instinctual awareness of, mm. and so regardless of the societal influence, a person is always capable of overcoming that. In that, and so while you you never have someone who's completely unaware of Torah and mitzvahs decide one day I'm not going to wear woolen linen, <laughs> like it just doesn't happen, or I'm not going to eat milk and meat. Mm. Um, that right. But you can have a person who is in a society um, where there's no sense of 
the society does not endorse honesty and, or that, and the person just feels on a gut level this is wrong. You see this in children. Like they, yeah. they, children have a gut level, it's not fair, this. And so modesty is also a thing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where, 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 while it's true, if a society is not modest, the person has a more of a hurdle to overcome, mm-hmm. but a person who's flagrantly immodest would go in, like the, would go in the same category as someone who's like, you know, slanders or steals. Okay. There is some element where you, where you say, well, that, so that doesn't make sense. You have this person who's extremely sensitive to, to not speaking Lashon Hara mm-hmm. and has no sense of modesty strikes me as like something that's psychologically untenable. Like I don't, can't admit. Like, no sense of modesty, but they were things that too... Yeah, so I'm saying, we start getting into the details yeah. of halacha, like I'm not getting, in, I'm not getting right. into that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's absolutely the case. It's, uh, the general point you're making is correct. I just wanted to not. I just wanted to make the point that certain things that we tend to think of in a more of a religious nature really from just are, are, are really and, and so citizens would say that not Torah would say that a society that doesn't embrace that is not just not aware of like the religious doctrine. It's like there's something there's an alienation going from from the innate kind of image of God that human beings are created in. Okay. Um, is knowledge something that's... You mentioned, like, knowledge being accumulated? No, so, this is the thing. There's, we have to... There's, there's things that seem to accumulate within the limited realm of the human experience, but then you can, like... This is something that some non-Jewish philosophers did, is that you can just, like, turn your direction to the human experience per se and say, like, okay... It seems to me intrinsically valuable for humans to gain knowledge. It seems intrinsically valuable for human beings to have belonging to community. It seems intrinsically valuable for human beings to have a sense of purpose. But then you can say, well, what makes human beings themselves intrinsically valuable? And then you run up short, and the more you like, d- dwell on that, then, then you end up with a very tragic condition where, where you desperately need a god and you don't have one. Um, one, of the, one of the great Enlightenment philosophers says, I wish I could believe in god. In other words, you get to a point where like, you need something to be God. You need something to be more real than the human condition that the human condition derives its reality from, but you don't have one. Mm-hmm. And so that creates a kind of an existential nihilism and it's very, very sad and, or it leads to all sorts of horrible things. Um, there's lots of philosophy on this topic. How do you get there? Don't go there. Oh, it's doing a lot of introspective thinking about human beings in a atheistic or secular framework. That's how you get there. Within a limited sense, which is as long as I'm not willing to look too deeply as to what a human being is, then yes. But if I look too deeply into what the essence of a human being is, then knowledge will seem to start being not accumulative at all. Um, well, that's if you're accumulating knowledge in that topic. Right, and so therefore, if you say in an absolute sense, eventually knowledge destroys itself because eventually you start turning, turning the acquisition of knowledge to the act of acquisition of knowledge and why that's so important and what that says about you as a person, and then you run into a problem. As long as you're acquiring knowledge about other stuff, right? But once you start trying to like self-reference, I'm engaged in this act of knowing, and it seems very meaningful. What is so meaningful about it? As you go deeper and deeper into that, it starts to feel like you're delegitimizing the whole purpose of knowing anything, and that's like very like, wow. yeah. So, so when I say when I gave those examples, you can do the same thing with community. They're in a limited sense for like you know the average person who doesn't do engage in, in, in that kind of that deep level of self reflecting. 
in the regular human experience, they pass for things that really accumulate. But if you want to speak in absolute terms, the only thing that's going to be that are things that are godly. And whether you're aware of that depends on your sensitivity. That's a separate point. Okay. So therefore, so a godly soul obviously cannot be transformed or destroyed, right? It makes no sense. Whereas the animal soul can. But then this whole like departed, right? Why is it departing? Okay. Why doesn't it just stick around? Where did it go? Well, we're going to get to that soon, but, but why depart? Why not just stick around? Why does it, why, the godly soul says departs. Oh. Why does it depart? I understand why you're not being transformed, but why depart? Had enough. That's right. Had enough. <laughs> That's right. Had enough. Then what is the one second. So, one second. We'll get there. So what does that say about the godly soul if it had enough? And the way I want to phrase this is, does that mean the godly soul is limited? Yeah, it can only handle so much. It can only handle so much, right? Yeah. What? Does that sound right? The godly soul can only handle so much, like, I can't take any more, I'm out of here. It doesn't sound very godly, does it? Maybe some other tactics to try and get into the future. Maybe, maybe. But I want to propose a slightly different angle on it. Is leaving, we'll use the, the buzzword now, a toxic situation, right? That's the buzzword, people like that word now, right? Used to be unhealthy, now it's toxic. I know what the, in, in five years we'll have a different word. Okay. Right. Leaving a toxic situation is a sign of weakness or strength? Or it depends? I would say it depends. I would say it depends. And I would like you to defend my position. Being that I'm the teacher, you will now defend my position that sometimes... Leaving a toxic situation is a sign of strength and sometimes it's a sign of weakness. Sometimes it's staying What? What what makes one one and one the other? Is it an opportunity for growth or is it an opportunity to like take care of yourself better? So which one is which? If it's an opportunity for growth, maybe you should stick it out a little longer. And if it's an opportunity to recognize where your line is and get distance to become healthier on your own, but I would say it's a sign of weakness. Because if you were stronger, you wouldn't need to leave. You could handle more. The fact I need to leave to take care of myself. Think about this. Think about this. If I have to leave to take care of myself, I'm having a healthy attitude towards my weakness, maybe. But it's still weakness. Because if I were stronger, I could deal with it. I would need to leave to take care of myself. So if you were infinitely strong. I could handle any talk. But like that's what I want you to think about it. Like the, 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 depends if the thing itself is important or if it's in order to get something else and you decide you're just going to... Whoa, that was so deep question. <laughs> okay, but then does it have anything to do with... But then, but then toxicity becomes irrelevant because even if the thing is not toxic at all, what I'm abandoning is just the, the fact that it's not important. Right. So then it doesn't matter whether it's toxic. Huh. But that wasn't my question. question. My question was about it being toxic. <laughs> right? I'm leaving because this is toxic. Well, if I'm leaving because it's toxic to take care of myself, that's a sign of weakness. Now, it's, it could be a healthy approach to weakness, which is I recognize that I cannot function under these conditions, and so I'm leaving. Okay, I'm having a mature attitude, but it's weakness because if I were stronger, I would be able to deal with that. It depends if you're doing it because you're giving up or because you figure out a better way. Explain. 
there is someone you care about who you have a very toxic relationship with, uh-huh. you can either leave because you're done, and you're giving up, and it's not worth it, or because I think it would be best for her and best for me if we stop this relationship. Right? And I care about her and me so much that I'm willing to stop. Okay, it. but if it's the, the best for me is a sign of weakness. Because that means if I was stronger, I could deal with that. So why is it, what do you mean best for? Best for her. How? How? Well, there's this person. We'll call her whatever. <laughs> um, Yeah, so let, let, me, let me give you a, an analogy. If someone insults you, should you respond to the insult? No. It depends. Because sometimes you respond to the insult, you put them in their place, and they, and they, and they realize that that's wrong and they should stop. But sometimes they're responding to the insult, what are you doing? You're just feeding it. Now, that's a, that, 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 that's a judgment call. Like, so, so let's say there's a way where so there's, there's some, someone insults you. There's a way that we respond to insults where we say something sharp back that's purely being, you know, ego defense, where, where we, we feel threatened. Okay, that's coming from weakness. I'm trying to defend myself. I'm scared, right? Or I run away because I don't want to face the, the fact this person is being aggressive towards me. Okay. Those are both weakness. Probably, yeah. And then you could say is like, but then there's something else, which is, okay, this person insulted me. I can live my life. It's okay they insulted me, but it's wrong that they insulted me. It's wrong. It shouldn't continue. It is wrong, right? Independent of my ability to function, is it an okay thing for people to go around insulting people? No. No, I have, in addition to my well-being, I have a notion of my moral compass. I have this thing called integrity, above and just safety. And so now coming from a place of integrity, I'm saying, this is wrong. Given that it's wrong, what should I do? Should I confront it or should I ignore it? Well, in some cases, confronting put a stop to it, right? But in some cases, confronting it feeds it, right? So if I'm saying, look, I, fine, but this is not okay. From a place of that integrity, from that place of conscience, this needs to stop. But there's no way to engage that and interact with it without feeding it. So you know what? If it needs to stop, the only constructive thing I can do is to leave. If I stayed, I would be fine. I would be fine. But I would be doing what? Feeding it? I would be feeding it. So I'm leaving. That's, that's leaving from a place of strength. Now, you can leave from a place that we might call strength if there's maturity and there's honesty, but it's unique, which is I'm leaving because this is going to harm me. It's going to destroy me if I keep up with this. So I can leave from a place of weakness that's mature and reasonable, but it's still rooted in weakness. This is toxic and it's hurting me. And if I let it continue to hurt me, it will consume me, it will destroy me. Now that doesn't make sense for the godly soul because the godly soul can't be destroyed. But there's a different thing, which is the godly soul can say, you know what? My being here gives legitimacy to this whole life. Those hirure tshuva, those those, those thoughts of I feel guilty give the person enough solace that allows them to perpetuate where they're holding. So you know what? I'm leaving. 
I'm not going to facilitate this anymore. The thoughts of tshuva, right, which we said come from the godly soul, that might be very much the thing that allows the person to console themselves that it's not so bad. Chassid speaks about this idea that a person, they, they, they cry about how lowly their spiritual state is, and they say, and there's a verse from Tilm which says that, that tears were like bread, just like bread satiates, the tears satiate. I cried about how bad my situation is, it must not be so bad because I was bothered. I cried. I, I, I felt bad about it. If I felt bad about it, I must not be such a bad person so I can continue living the way I've been living. So God says, you know what? No more tears. No more feelings of guilt. No more, no more contrition. Nothing. No more of the cycle. No more of the cycle. I'm out. Live an evil life. Then he really won't. What? Then he really won't. One second. Okay. So, so you're, no longer, you're, no longer, you're no longer participating in reinforcing it, right? But you're also going and now, like, where, where's the person, like, what's going to happen now, right? Okay, so we have to read a little bit more, shall we? So as the latter has already departed from him within him, standing aloof, so to speak, over him. Now, this expression, standing aloof over him, is actually a technical term in Hasidus. If you look in the Hebrew, it says, makif alav milamayla. So this, the, 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 this word makif is a technical term in Hasidus. It's very important to understand that. I don't know if aloof is the best translation to get at the conceptual idea. It's fine as like a, you know, translating it. What does that mean? What does it mean that's makif? So I need a volunteer. We're gonna play a game because I want to illustrate makif and specifically what makif means in this context. Okay, but I need a volunteer. Um, and you have to be willing to do whatever I say. And I promise I'm not going to ask you to do anything that's, you know, too embarrassing. All right. Yes? Okay. So um, I need a piece of paper. I have. Wait, let me get a piece of paper. Yeah. So I, and can I borrow someone's pen? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a topic down. And I want you to spend a minute or so thinking about a short two or three minute presentation about the topic. Okay? I'm going to give you the topic. Yeah, yeah, I want you to think for two or three minutes about something to say for two or three minutes. I'm not looking at the clock, but like, okay. Now, the reason I'm writing it down is because I don't want anyone else to know what it is. So, there's the topic. What? And um, if you look at the topic and think for a few minutes. In the meantime, we all have to like, do something else. <laughs> That's the part I haven't really figured out yet. <laughs> but, um, see, Without I could, naming. You can do whatever you want. Oh. So you can start with the sentence. You can do whatever you want. As, but long, you, as, as long as it's on that topic for about two to three minutes. Um, so there, there's a story of the Balshem Tov. Okay, okay. What? I was going to say, say oh, a story. Um, you, you have to be oh, thinking. Okay. Oh, I'm thinking. There's a, there, there's, a story, there's a story of the Balshem Tov. And um, the, remember I said at the end of class about how the, the simplicity of a person actually touches God in a deep way. So there's this, this Balshem Tov. It was a simple... 
Oh, now I started the story. I have to wait till I finish the story. I'll make the story quick. There was a simple Jew, and this simple Jew didn't understand Hebrew. They didn't know where it was. So they would, they would daven every day, and they'd just start reading the Siddur from beginning to the end. They just read everything. The Vashandu came to town and saw this, and he had compassion, so he, he put little bookmarks in the person's Siddur of what to say, what days. You know, what, what we say in Rosh Chodesh, what we say in this day. He said these little pieces of paper, and it said, in Yiddish, what to do. And he was very grateful. And Baal Shem Tov left. And then he dropped his sitter, and all the piece of paper fell out. And he was very sad. And he was very distraught. So he ran after the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov got, was, he saw the Baal Shem Tov ahead of him. The Baal Shem Tov got to the riverbank. And the Baal Shem Tov took off his gartel, threw it down over the river, and walked over the gartel, picked up the gartel, and walked over the other side. So this year, he was so desperate to be the Baal Shem Tov, he took off his own gartel, threw it down, walked over the river. <laughs> Inside, he catches up to the Baal Shem Tov, and the Baal Shem Tov, he says, the Baal Shem Tov, what should I do? The sitter, everything fell. The Baal Shem Tov says, how did you catch up to me? He says, well, I ran after you. He says, but the river. He says, I just did what you did. He says, you can keep davening the way you've been davening. It's okay. That's amazing. All right. Okay. Yes, you ready? One of the revolver rabbis, and a person approached him and said to him, and was challenging him, he asked him, Can God create another God? And the Tzedek said to him, He did. He's called a Jew. This is very intrinsically connected to the whole idea that we are literally one with God. And that oneness leads to incredible, intense love. The same way you have incredible, intense love for yourself, and will give yourself every excuse and will. Have your own best interests in mind, and you'll further your own interests. You exist, existence. You want to do the best for yourself ultimately, on an instinctual level, because it is you. Hashem and the Jews are one in this very same way. And this leads to the other things, reasons why Jews should love one another. And okay, we're done. <laughs> you were talking. Yes, I was. You said some words. I'm going to ask you about some words that you said. You said Chabad. Yes. You said God. You said intrinsic. You said incredible. And you said you. Right? You said Chabad in the context of telling everyone who it's an authentic was. You could have said Lubavitch though, right? I think she did say Lubavitch. She did not. I was paying very close attention. She said Chabad. Were you aware that you said Chabad and not Lubavitch? Did you intend to say Chabad as opposed to using Lubavitch? Okay. Uh, why didn't you say Lubavitch? Do you know? It's a yes or no question. Do you know? I'm not asking you to come up with a reason. I'm asking you. Do you know? You know why? You know what? What's the reason why you said Chabad is supposed to Lubavitch? Why are you thinking so much? What? Because for some reason in my head, Lubavitch is personal than saying Chabad. Did you consciously think about that? So what you're doing is you're trying to retrospectively come up with an, something that sounds reasonable to you. No. But at the, what? At the time when you said it? At the time I said it wasn't thinking. You wasn't saying what you're saying? So you just, no. yeah, just, Chabad came out. Yeah. Okay. You said God. Why didn't you say Hashem? Because. You, you're doing the same thing now. I'm asking you, at the time when you said it, did you, did you choose to say God as opposed to saying Hashem? No, I didn't. Okay. So we could go back and I'll think about why you would have done that. But at the time, it just... That's what came out of your mouth. You said intrinsic as opposed to essential. Both would have worked in the sentence. Again, here, is there a reason at the time why you used the word essential? Okay. You said incredible. You could have used wondrous. 
okay? You, you praise, praise everything in the second person singular you, right? You should, you should, you should, right? Um, but given that we're speaking about Jews, you could have used, said the same idea using the first person plural we, and the idea would have been the same. Is there a reason why you did it that way? No, okay. Now, these are just some of the things that I picked up while you were talking. I mean, there's lots of these, right? So this is fascinating, right? You're making word choices completely unaware of why those are the word choices. Now, after they're pointed out to you, you're like, well, I'm sure there's a reason. You're trying to look what inside myself would drive me to use those word choices versus that word choice. But when you were speaking, I, I mean, I, I, if I asked you like why you started with what you started with, right? How you built the idea, like why this, like that you probably thought through, right? But this level of, of, of vocabulary selection was not something you experienced doing at all. It just happened. So there's a part of your mind which you don't experience, do you? Right. At all. Does that part of your mind have an effect on you, though? Yes. Very powerful effect. It's and in fact, <laughs> that's right. It's speaking for you. Isn't this really weird? The part of you that's actually doing the selection of the words is almost always completely outside of your mind. It's only when a person becomes consciously aware of that and starts paying attention and then thinks for words to say. But the overwhelming use of speech. Right? Now, the reason I did this, I want you to have a topic. Okay? And the reason I wanted to have a topic is if you don't give someone a topic, it's very hard for people to speak. Um, and I wanted that I should provide the topic um, because I, 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 didn't, I, I, I didn't want it to be something you've already, already done. I wanted it to be new. So I gave you a topic. The topic something you, you could speak about. So what was the topic? Hashem's love for every Jew. Hashem's love for every Jew, right? Um, and obviously, like, being an intelligent person, you're going to arrange what you're going to say. Like, there's going to be a, a starting point, and, 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 you know, A leads to B, and then that leads to something else, right? And that you, you logically fought through, and if you're going to use an example, you use a story, whatever it is, right? But then when you get to the nitty-gritty word choice, it just happened. And that's, like, the actual speaking part. So the actual... Speaking part of the mind is not in the mind at all. It's, to use the English, standing aloof, so to speak. Or the technical term for this in Hasidus is makif. Makif means it is having an effect without actually being perceived at all. It's there, it's having an effect, and yet... And yet I'm not aware of it. And you're not aware of it, and it's like it's not there at all. So much so that when I start asking you, you start like having to come up with a backstory of like, and maybe the story is true. Maybe that's what's going on in your unconscious mind, but maybe not. I've heard oh, mockers, though, in the context of like something like that, something that someone is very aware of. But you could be. The, the, makif, makif, makif is a relational word. Um, so like big and small. So if something big is a relational word, one thing is bigger than the other, and the inverse of that is small, right? So makif is opposed to this concept called panimi. Now I spoke about this in another context in class and then I used makif and panimi slightly differently because depending on how you understand what specific level of reality you're dealing with, the exact meaning of makif and panimi will change just like the terms big and small will change. If I put them in a context of physical size, they mean something very different than I think of them in terms of say, something like intelligence. A bigger intelligence and a smaller intelligence is a very different notion. It's a qualitative difference. So 
And then you can see all the ways it's used differently and see why they're common denominators and why we use the same word because there's a general similarity. I mean, you explaining Matkif as we have an analogy for something as it applies in this context. In other contexts, you might have a slightly different conception of what the word Matkif means because it's referring to something slightly different, but it has a similar dichotomous feel between the technical term Matkif and the technical term Pnimi. Like the term is big and small. Okay. So, does the godly soul actually disappear? It, 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 it withdraws, it leaves what? Your experience. It doesn't leave you. When do you ever leave? So does this person ever feel feelings of maybe I should return to God? Or guilt for doing their various? No. But is the godly soul still there? So what if One second. For instance, that godly soul, that, that might get them to say yes when someone asks them to do a mitzvah that they've never done before. And that contrast at that moment between a godly act and a life devoid of any sense of God, it's like a person's in the dark. And all of a sudden you light a tiny, tiny match. They become acutely aware of how dark the dark actually is. So what motivated them to say yes? What, what motivated you to say Chabad as well as I don't know. You didn't, you know. Whatever it was, it was not part of your experience at all. person stops on the street and says, well, you're Jewish? Do you want? And for some reason they say yes. I don't know why. I, says, I don't know why I said yes. Do you want to put on tefillin? Yes. I don't know why I said yes. Hmm. I just did. And then they put on the tefillin. And that does something that all of a sudden they feel some, there's, a, there's a contrast between something and something. Mm-hmm. And then that starts moving them on a path. Back to Hashem. That's not the only example. I'm just giving you an example. It's not that the godly soul disappears from the person. It disappears from their experience. Mm. Because the, the experience of remorse and contrition and guilt is feeding into the negativity. Okay. It, do, it doesn't feel like godly soul when you think good... When you think what? Like when you say yes? No, I'm saying like... As in ever, all good feelings come from the godly soul and all bad thoughts or drives or instincts come from... Well, good is a very vague term. Be specific. Like, what's the thing that you think I'm saying that you think may not be true? Like, be specific and then we can talk about it. That people can consciously feel their godly soul. It's not consciously. People can experience their godly soul, but, not, but, it, but, it's, but, it's, but it's mediated through the animal soul. For instance, like you said, the fact that a sinner, who's a real sinner, doesn't, feels guilty on some level, that's the godly soul. Now, it's wrapped up in feelings of ego and self-pity, so it's not pure godly soul experience, but it's like chocolate. There's, a, there's, a, there's some amount of sugar in the chocolate, unless you get pure cocoa, right? But, you know, you ever have that chocolate that's like 80% cocoa? There's some sugar in there. But it's like very little, right? And then, right? And then you know, if they get the milk chocolate, which has like a lot of sugar, right? Okay, so, so. But, you know what? And even if you're eating like really rich, rich milk chocolate with lots of sugar in it, right? Lots of milk and cream and vanilla and all that stuff. It's still not the same thing as just like eating a sugar cube or powdered sugar, right? It's just not the same. So, you, it, we have to be careful is that... In, when we say you don't experience our godly soul, what I mean is when you talk about the godly soul as kind of this pristine thing and the godly soul feels this, the godly soul feels this. no, you're never experiencing that. 
But that has become enmeshed within your experiences and you're experiencing it mixed with other things. So it's like food. Food has many different flavors and textures interwoven. Make sense? Okay. So if the godly soul is vanished, then you don't get any of that. This person doesn't feel a longing to go back to Shul on Yom Kippur. They don't feel any sort of guilt over the fact that they're eating tray food. They, something, some, something might push them to say yes that they don't know why. Or they could do the logical thing and say no. Right. And again, this doesn't... No, this, this is, I don't want to be clear. Whatever... This is the weird thing. I'll just point this out, but we're not, we're not going to spell it. You didn't... If I asked, did you choose to say Chabad? The answer is yes and no. Because whatever selected the word Chabad and not Lubavitch is not your conscious mind at all. But on the other hand, like... It couldn't have forced you to say Chabad if you didn't want to say, if you didn't choose to speak about that and you didn't want to say that, right? Right. So there's like some sort of kind of confluence between your choosing decision-making power as a, as, a, as, a, as a sentient human being and this other thing, which is very weird, that's right. doing your word selection for you. Similarly, like if the person says, I'm going to like reject, they can do that. Right. But if they're, if they're not going to choose that, what was the thing that made, put the yes on their tongue? There's something else going on there. Okay. So there's this makif. And so the person, still, the person still has a godly soul. And that godly soul is still having an effect. It's just no longer... Experience. It's not their parents. It's not ever experienced, even in a distorted way. But, they're still, but therefore they can still they have a basis for doing tshuva. Right? They're still go, they're still might be driven to do a mitzvah. Right? They still might be aroused towards mysterious nefesh, towards self-sacrifice. Right? It's just... The, the experiential manifestation is withdrawn. And therefore, the sage have said, over every 10 Jews hovers the Shechina. And this idea of hovering of the Shechina is like makif, right? You have 10 Jews get together, right? The Shechina is there. Do you feel the Shechina? <laughs> but if the Shechina is there, can we do different things like the reading of the Torah? Can the Torah be read if, the, if there's not a minion? But the Shechin is there. Or sorry, but the, but so, so, because the Shechin is not there, right? But do you feel the Shechin? Do you experience the Shechin? No. So the Shechin's resting is resting on which part of the soul? The soul's, the soul's very presence in you, not the soul's experience. And therefore the Shechin is also not something that's experienced. The Shechin doesn't rest in our minds and in our experience. The Shechin rests on the part of the soul which always remains by us, even though it's aloof. And therefore the Shekhin is also aloof. And it has effects, it has consequences. When you sin in the presence of 10 Jews, it's much graver than if you sin in private because you're sinning in the presence of... Did you know that? No. In fact, there's a lacha category of a person who is a Shabbos violator. What makes you a Shabbos violator? If you violate Shabbos in the presence of 10 Jews. Why is that the only... I mean, wouldn't you still be a Shabbos violator if you... Knowing you turned on the kitchen light? Or? Well, because the, the halakha is, sorry, there's what's called a public Shabbos violator, ah, okay. which has very. Uh, public you, mean 10 Jews. Right, 10 Jews know about it. Um, and I don't know if that's exactly connected to the idea of Shekhinah, but it seems from the sources that there's a similar, mm. right? There's a mitzvah to sanctify God's name. There's a separate mitzvah to sanctify God's name in public. Mm. What's public? There's a mitzvah not to desecrate God's name. There's a separate mitzvah not to desecrate God's name in public. The saying, there's certain mitzvahs that can only be done, okay? There's an interesting question, by the way, I'll just point this out. Why, if, if this, if the Shekhinah rests because there's 10, 
then why can't a woman count for a minion? Obvious question. So there are many different views. I'll just tell you the rush. One of the commentators on the, on the Talmud and one of the basic lacha codes, and he says there's a differentiation between the presence of the Shechina, which is on any ten people who the covenant of God applies to, whether whether they're Jew, whether they're they're men, whether they're women, um, even if they're a, a slave owned by a Jew, which is also part of the covenant, so they have a godly soul. Doesn't even, matter. Even, even the kids. Uh, even kids. Versus, cre- versus the idea where you're engaged in a joint, where you're engaged in some kind of a mitzvah observance which has a measure of joint obligation. Mm. And therefore he says, those elements where we speak of the Shekhinah in a kind of a, a spiritual sense, the Shekhinah is there. Now, but when we then add to the Shekhinah the idea of, of creating kind of a mutual halachic thing, for reasons that I'm not getting into right now, then we, the male-female distinction will come into play. So the idea that if there are 10 Jews, the Shekhinah rests, and we're doing a mitzvah, it's considered doing it in public and this kind of thing. In his view, that, that has nothing to do with whether they're men or women or whatever. Um, on the other hand, the idea of a minion is that there's one, is that, is that, is that, is that there's creating a, a sense that there's a kind of communal obligation rather than individual obligation. And that, he says, has a different concept, legal concept behind it than just the presence of the Shekhinah. Not everyone agrees with that, but I'm just pointing that out that, that we don't want to oversimplify the idea and say, well, if that, then, 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 mm-hmm. um, should apply to, to women. And in general, I've said before, is that we don't use spiritual ideas as basis for halacha anyway. Um, halacha kind of has an independent logic to it, which once you understand what halacha is, you can find parallels in the spirituality, but we never work the other way around. But independent of that, there are people, there are, not everyone agrees with that halacha differentiate the notion of the shekhinah resting from when halacha demands a minion in order to do a mitzvah, such as public Torah reading or something like that. But I'll leave that at that. Okay. So when we say that the godly soul departs, we're saying it departs from what? From experience, not it departs from the person. Mm, so kind of and the question is why? And the reason is because it's not departing because it can't handle it. It's departing because it's inappropriate for it to be there. Right? It's departing in a way of strength, not in a way of weakness. If you're departing in a way of weakness, then you leave because it's not good for you. But if you're departing in a way of strength, you depart so that you're not you're not supporting, you're not legitimizing the negative thing, but you don't disconnect. Mm, it's being That's right. Can I ask what <sighs> Spiritually speaking? Yeah. So there's a part of the soul which is connected to God. There's a part of the soul which is clothed in the person, Okay. In that, the part of the soul that's called in the person, we have to divide into two parts, which is we'll call it for right now the, the, um, the, the deepest part of the, it, the, 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 the kind of core of the godly soul, and versus the, the um, extension, the, the manifestations of the godly soul. So, so I'm now what I've done is divide the godly soul twice. I divide it once between the part that's united with God and the part that's in the body. Okay? And then I divide the part that's in the body between kind of its core and its more external superficial qualities, okay? Make sense? I mean, obviously we could elaborate for hours and hours on those differences, but we have, the, so that we have to have that, those three clear and how... So when a person sins, the part that's connected to God is not participating in the sin at all. 
the part of the godly soul in the body does participate in the sin. Okay? However, the, the altar says the core part still is loyal to God, whereas the external parts are not. So just to give you a quick analogy, um, someone who is, someone who is um, in prison often goes through a process called institutionalization. They become institutionalized. They, 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 they start to experience and relate to themselves through the lens of the prison or through the lens of it's in a hospital or something like that. Um, and No, it's something that happens psychologically because, because the nature of human psychology is to adapt. Human beings in, adapt. I mean, this is good and bad. Like, the thing that makes you the happiest in the world will not make you happy forever. You will adapt to having it and you will no longer be happy from it. And the thing that makes you most miserable in the world, and you'll no longer be miserable anymore. You will be. You will not. You will not, right? Yeah. Okay. And so what ends up happening is you start framing everything in terms of that, and so you kind of adjust. So when, in, when, when, when a person sins, the external elements of the godly soul in the body, they kind of, they, they, they buy into the animal soul's perspective. They, 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 they adopt that. They, they go into the kind of that process. So, so they're, 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 in other sense, they're okay with sinning. It's okay, I'm sinning. It's not the end of the world. They buy into that. The core of the godly soul the core element of the godly soul does not. The core element of the godly soul, even at the moment of sin, says, I'm doing this under duress. Okay? Um, and therefore, in other words, it, it, and, and this is, so, so it, it, doesn't, it, it does not have that, that sense that of, of it's, it's the sense of being dragged away from itself, dragged into something, forced into something. So again, you, if you think about the prisoner who's been in prison for 25 years, how he feels about being in prison versus the prisoner who was just, just arrested, just, just sentenced to the 25 years, right? They're experiencing the imprisonment radically differently, even though the practicalities, they're both following the rules, right? And the reason is because the, the one has lost any sense of what his life is like outside of this. And the, and the other person who's just entered the prison for 25 years, has a very clear sense of what his life is before prison. And so that core has a strong sense of the part of the soul that always remains united with God. And that's what gives it its sense that even when I'm sinning, this is against my will. I don't, this is not me. Mm-hmm. However, when a person sins with charis, the connection between the core of the godly soul and the body and the godly soul as it's with God gets severed. And as a result of that, the long-term effects of the sin are much greater, and healing it is much more difficult. Because the core starts feeling. The like core, that right. The core doesn't the right, and therefore the soul doesn't bounce back from the sin the way it, way it would with a non-kari sin. Because at after the moment of sin, the core kind of like takes hold of the person, and all kind of comes back, and you're like, "What happened to me? How, how does that?" Right? And but when a person sins with karis or and Alter actually says, even other sins which are not kari sins, but you accumulate many non-kari sins, it has the same effect, that it severs the connection between the core of the godly soul and the body, and the godly soul as it's united with God, and, it's be- and even that part of the soul kind of forgets what it really is. And at that point, re- bouncing back from the sin does not have an intuitive element. It becomes, it becomes an act of, 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 of will to, to kind of, in other words, 
there's a way in which after sin, a person bounces back to some degree. Mm-hmm. It's a moment of weakness, you recover. And that's because you, you, there was an element that was connection being retained throughout the sin. When kares happen, similar to kares, that doesn't happen. What's an example of those, that category of sin? Violating Shabbos, willfully, willful desecration, uh, willful um, violation of Yom Kippur. All the kares sins are willful, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, a willful violation of the forbidden relationships, Nida laws. Um, and so there's an element of the godly soul's ability to really be itself that gets permanently damaged. It's repairable, but if you don't repair it, it, it whereas a regular sin, the soul bounces back afterwards. So can you compare this with the Tzadik Rale's soul? Yeah, yeah. So what ends up happening is the entire connection. So not, by the way, not all Karises are the same. The Altar says in a note in Tanya that... that Kares itself, there's different levels and types of kares. So, but yes, and there's still a makif, and, and, and yes. Right. So my, my, can, can you contrast? Sorry, like when we say that what's happening to the Tzadik Rale is Mishan. It's like an ultimate mak, it's like an ultimate kares. Okay, so it's like the same thing. It, yeah, now there, there are. Now there are differences. There are. The Rosh Hashanah, but there are differences because you don't, because you could have, you could, a person could do a sin of kares and not become a Rosh Hashanah, right? It's not, it's the same. Framework, but this is a much more absolute sense. Although going back to what I said previously is that you could be a Russian virale in a particular thing, right? So in that sense, maybe I was saying my my oldest son when I first was many years ago, he asked me what's karis, what's the soul cutting off. Um, he says not not in the times of the temple when people would actually die. Like nowadays, I said, well, if a person does a very with his karis, then it makes it very hard to pray, mm-hmm. even after you sin. Whereas if you do a regular vera, it it it. it there's the contamination of the sin, but the godly soul's ability to pray is still, in some sense, bounces back. But why, why Praying, I mean pouring out yourself right. to God, not pray in the sense of saying sitter. Like that's just a verbal exercise. Why, would, why is it not the same thing, being a Russian I'm not. I'm saying it's similar. I'm just saying is the more you get into it, I don't want you to equate the two. That every time you're Russian Varale, every time a person does karis, boom, they're Russian Varale. Russian Varale is a much... As a person, is a much broader thing. It, it it has the same dynamics as karis, but it but it means you could, a person could have suffered from karis, but not all karis are the same. I mean, the, a person who willfully violates Shabbos is not the same thing as a person who willfully eats forbidden fat, even though they're both karis, and the effect of the soul being cut off is not the same thing. So, and I know for, certain things like when you get into just reading those. When you get into like the nuances of how sin affects you, Chassidus does not discuss it. Because Chassidus doesn't find it particularly relevant. Chassidus thinks it's important to have, understand the general contours of things when it comes to sin. Because the whole idea is you're supposed to realize that sin is bad and put it in context. It's not you're supposed to be, become an expert in diagnosing the, the specific effects of each and every sin. So while Chassidus is very nuanced when it comes to godliness, it's very superficial when it comes to klipa. It's, it's nuanced in the relationship between klipa and kedusha, but klipa itself is just like, like explain the difference between the three impure klipas. And you know there are three impure klipas, right? No, there are three impure right. It always says, where does it say what they are? It doesn't anywhere in Chassidah say what they are. It just why says, because that's what it says in Kabbalah. Now, you could open up Kabbalah works and they'll tell you, but Chassidah doesn't talk about it because Chassidah doesn't think. Do you know what they are? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it, in, 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 um, as they manifest in a person, 
They're spiritual entities. They're spiritual entities. They're spiritual entities. They're spiritual entities. There's a work of of ethics based on Kabbalah called Reshis Chachma. And there he says, what are the three impure klipas as they manifest in the service of God in a person? So just to be clear, klipas noga manifests in the person as a preoccupation with your own well-being. So anything that is based on what, how will this enhance me, that would be klipas noga. And everything that stems from that is klipas noga in terms of the human psyche, which is basically the whole human psyche. Shlosh HaKlipas Demegas are, the three impure Klipas would be um, the following. Stubbornness, sorry, arrogance, stubbornness, and anger. And it seems to me that um, and I could be wrong about this, he means specifically how they are in reference to God. Although in other words, what I mean is that there's a there's a there's there's an ar- there's what's arrogance? Thinking that you're more than another. Yeah. So, what would arrogance be in the context of God? Thinking God doesn't have much to say to you. You're just. Yeah, yeah. that's God's opinion. This is my opinion. It's okay. He can have his opinion. I'll have my opinion. Who's he to tell me what to do, right? What does Paro say? Who's God? I should listen to him. Like, what was this? What was this one called? In Hebrew? Yeah. Gaiva, which means arrogance. Okay. Then you go a step down. There's a pretty strong rejection of God, right? <laughs> so you go a step down is stubbornness. What's stubbornness? It's just like you know, but you're not willing to change. Okay, but if you're not willing to change, then who has to change? Hashem. That's right. Whoa. Let him change. And what if he's not willing to change? He never is. <laughs> then where does that lead to? Why is stubborn? Have, have, have you ever encountered someone who's stubborn? Yeah. Okay. What's their attitude about problems? My way That's right. So who has to change? Okay. okay. And what happens if Hashem is not willing to change? You get angry. Then you get you angry and you become right, right, aggressively against God. Yeah, so first it starts off with that God, God has his opinion. That's his problem. It's not my problem. Oh, like, well, there's a conflict here? Let him change. Well, he's not going to change? They can't, there's no room in my life for God. Out. I'm done. Finished. What is, so this is a separate... Those are the three impure klipas as they manifest in the human psyche. Oh, so... Oh. There's no, like, sweet spot where a person can have just the right amount of meaning in their life. But also, like, just none of it can be godly. Really, just exist fine as a Jew. No, no. But you, you, have heard of you. You know the idea that like every character in Tanakh and thing represents a certain spiritual energy, like Avram is Chesed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so who's Vashti? Vashti, Haman, Mordechai, Esther. No one talks about Vashti. Who's Vashti? Vashti. So Vav it means and, right? Okay. And Shte means. So Vashti means in both. Vashti is the klipa that tells you you could have both. You could have just the right amount of klipa, just the right amount of kedusha. You could find the sweet spot, but that itself is a kind of a klipa. That voice in your head, how that, how that spells out the story, I don't know, but in her name. Yeah, that, that voice that says, you could find the sweet spot where you could have the best of both worlds. 
It's a clipper named Vashti. There you go. Can I just ask, just for my notes, um, you said Kripa's Noga was a superficial obsession with your own well-being? I said superficial? I think so. I didn't mean to. I said it, I don't know. But like, no. like, just like, you're so, you're up here, you're thinking about your own well-being, you're not thinking about deep anything. No, you're, no, you're, no, it means it's around your well-being okay. as opposed to God. And what were the names of the three different, what does Kripa's Noga mean? Klipas Noga means the shiny Klipa. Okay. But there's like three levels and one of them is stubborn. No, no. Klipas Noga is separate. Klipas Noga uh, is not one of the three imperial leaders. So there's, I'm concerned about my own well-being. Uh-huh. Well, that, that is a subtle denial of God because I'm kind of equating myself to God. But it's not an active denial of God, right? In fact, I might realize that what's good for my well-being is serving God, right? So in that case, it's like somewhat compatible. Okay. But once I have the arrogance, I'm like, no. I'm like, my life, my rules. And then God's like, no, my life, my rules. Like, well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to change, God. He's like, I don't change. You change. He's like, well, then be gone with you. Atheism, here I come. <laughs> like the godly still leaving. But, but like that's, that's the progression of how it goes, right? So just remember, every time you sin, you're strengthening which tendency in you? The tendency to be arrogant, stub- arrogant stubborn, and angry with God. Every time you sin, it has that effect on you, that it, it reinforces that tendency in the human being. Not good. But seeing Chassidus doesn't really dwell on that because, like, they're bad. It, it, it goes against God. There's no way to connect to God with this, so just leave it alone. Like, like from, the, from the perspective of the godly soul, is it really important to know this nuance? Mm-mm. From the perspective of Musr, it's extremely important. So Reish's Chacham is a work of Musr based on Kabbalah, and it's very important to appreciate these differences. But how do I know about this? Because I always wanted to know what the three impure cleavers were. Not just spiritually, but like as they play out in the person. Because Klippus Nogat says, is the sense of being concerned with your own well-being, because that's actually important for, to know in Ram says. But the, the three Klippus never says what they are. What is it spiritually? Is it something we can understand? Yeah, but I don't want to go into it right now. Okay. So I, I looked and looked and looked and saw the Rebbe has a note on Tanya. He says, this is not discussed anywhere in Chassidus. But if you would like, to, if, but, but he says, but it is discussed in the following books. Um, and then he says, and as it plays out in a person's service of God, see Rashi Chachma chapter this. I'm like, ooh, and I look at the Rashi I'm like, ooh, mm-hmm. more information. So there you go. So when the Tani says that the ten, when ten people come together, the, the Shina rest. Ten Jews. Ten Jews, right? Is that like a double proof kind of how, what it like? What it's like? That shows you that a the godly soul is uh-huh. still there, but it b it's only. Mark it. That shows you what Mark has done. Right. Okay, exactly. All right, we finished. I'm sorry to get question and answers, but we got to a lot of good stuff. <laughs> 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 Next week, we're going to start chapter 12, which is, you